Are you ever curious what's going on behind the scenes in Hollywood? You watch a Netflix show or a Marvel movie and you wonder, why was that person in it? Why did this movie get made? I'm Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News, and I'm covering the inside conversation about money and power in Hollywood. With my new show, The Town, on the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm going to take you inside Hollywood with exclusive insight on what people in show business are actually talking about. Multiple times a week, we're going to bring you short, digestible episodes featuring some of the smartest people I know breaking down the hottest topics in entertainment to tell you what's really going on. Follow The Town now and listen on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, the president of the Kim Wexler Preservation Society, it's Andy Greenwald. Happy Thursday. Wow, you know, you, we, before we even started this podcast, you just got on, you're all relaxed, you're all loose, and you're just sharing some real shitty takes with me. Let's go through them <laughs> one by one. Number okay. one, Andy, pro house flipping. No, first of all, <laughs> how dare you? Anti-house flipping, I'm respecting the hustle, okay? I, That's true. As, you are just like the, the hustler in chief. You love a hustler. I, listen, Chris, here's the thing. Like, I, uh, as you as you know, I had an apartment in the city of New York, Brooklyn, New York, that I loved very much and spent time putting some work into, like yeah. some nice tiles from Mexico and open floor I, I, plan, I, an accent wall, which is something I learned on HGTV. Did you, where, have, like, a one, Did you have a dumb waiter? Don't say that about him. He was <laughs> a lovely guy who just volunteered to help out at mealtime. And it's not his fault that he didn't have a New Yorker subscription. No, no. Oh, there was a weird closet. If that's what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> That, but that was just old New York building. But like I had this little part of the wall where like I painted it. We, we, we uh, it was like soft pumpkin. I was like, oh, that really pops. It was lovely. All this like I wanted a, a counter that was like rough hewn wood because you know that's what my soul is like on the inside. And it's also just like when it comes bark. to when it comes to your cooking, it's just really family style and it's small plates and it's just like we're just gonna. It's kind of rustic, you know. So you're it's gonna, gonna have come to out have... when it comes out. <laughs> yeah. So all of this is to say. I had a restaurant experience the other night where they actually asked me if I would like them to course that out for me. Wow. Did you slap them in the face? Hey, if it's fucking Thursday night, you know, if you guys want to take a run at it, go for it. I mean, everyone forgot how to be, you know, over the last (laughs) few years, so that's fine. Anyway, all of this is to say, sold the apartment, and, you know, then a couple years passed, and you're like, I wonder, 
wonder what's up with the old homestead. Yeah. Google, Google, Google. You look it up, and uh, it's already back on the market for considerably more money. And I believe the reason it's on the market for considerably more money is the fact that the people who we sold it to took out every single thing that I just mentioned to you and replaced it with marble. Like literally everything. The, the weird closet was just a slab of marble. You make it sound like you sold your apartment to Sonny Crockett. <laughs> I just say, I was like, oh, who? I, I think people want rough hewn oak bark. No, nope, people just want the thing that everybody else has and they sell it for more. So all I was saying is A, bad at business. B, still don't know what crypto is. C, with Kaya, I was just saying, like, I don't, I don't respect the artistry of house flippers. I just, like, that seems, though, like a pretty good hustle. If you know how to just put marble on everything, then you make a lot of money. Yeah, they're playing by the rules that have been set, you know? I, I, I understand it. Uh, Andy, on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about a couple of things. First of all, uh, second half of the pod is going to be my conversation with Max Bornstein, who's the showrunner of Winning Time, uh, the Lakers show on HBO that uh, I love quite a bit. Uh, we talked a little bit about that on Monday. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit today, before we get to that, about the Better Call Saul and Obi-Wan trailers, just because I feel like March is, March is the quiet before the storm. And that's incredible to be saying that when you've got Severance, you've got um, Pieces of Her, which I started watching with Tony Collette, where she's just like, Mom John Wick. So that's pretty cool. Um, no, those three words don't do it for you. Mom John Wick. Keep Mom talking. Wick. Um, and then it's it's amazing that we're calling March a relatively quiet month when Atlanta's coming back in two weeks and Moon Knight oh and Moon Knight is coming is that that's this month and then April is among other things Better Call Saul which we are going to talk about today gosh there's just like a ton of stuff Russian Dolls coming back in April Um, I believe this show that we're also going to discuss today the Josh Brolin show Outer Range that did a trailer this week is coming out in April. So there's just a ton of stuff in April and then in May, Obi-Wan. You do a trailer. You do a trailer, love. <laughs> All right. What about Slow Horses then, In it? When's that coming? Oh, yeah, Slow Horses. That's, the number one I, show of the podcast. That will be the only thing we talk about, I think. Is, when, uh, when does is, that come out? That's April, yeah, on Apple TV. Hey, by the way, I, I just want to, that reminds me, and it's also a little housekeeping, we are not talking about Top Chef Or today. late March, late March, I think. We're, we're recording this uh, Thursday. And yeah, we're not talking usually, about Top Chef today. Usually by now, we have been granted access to a screener. We have not. This is not a woe is us. It's just we don't have the episode, so we're not going to be talking about it today. And also, as we said last week, we won't be covering it necessarily as extensively as we in years past. We won't be dedicating I, entire shows to it on its own. Yeah. Yes, but I did want to clarify. I did notice someone make a comment, um, I think on the Facebook group, they were like, uh, Woof, I guess they must have seen the the numbers for their Top Chef pods. And let me tell you, friend, something. I have never seen the numbers. I've been doing this 10 years. They keep me in a lockbox. I have <laughs> no idea what you people want. And I feel like that works out for us. Do you want to know? We just said, no. What? No, do you know? I, I have a sense. What? what? You know? Yeah, I have a sense, yeah. And yet you still, just as you did moments ago, say... We will only be covering the British spy show Slow Horses for the month when Atlanta and Moon Knight comes out. So I just direct, like we are my not... direct deposit goes through no matter what. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's true. Every two weeks. That's true. You're 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 a company guy. 
I am, but I, I feel like we, we're covering lots of TV across the Ringer Podcast Network. We're covering a lot of it on the watch. You know, it's a, it's a great time. I'm in the scheme of things, just so people understand it. You're Mr. McDowell, and I am Akeem. You know what I mean? Like in 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 the coming to America analogy of this podcast, you it's your franchise, right? And I just mop up. That's right. Um, and then marry your daughter. Let's talk a little bit about probably uh, the most anticipated show of the year, which in some some places is Obi-Wan Kenobi, but in this place is Better Call Saul. So uh, we got our trailer for the first part of Better Call Saul's final season. And here are my thoughts on this trailer, which mm, people can mm. watch on the on the YouTube.com network. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a perfect piece of marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody should bow down and take notes on how to show me something from this season of TV without showing me the entire season of TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder whether or not Kim Wexler is the deepest emotional connection I have with a television character that is new, that isn't like a legacy thing where they're like, hey, remember this from your childhood? Like, isn't this important to see this person up and about again? It's like, no, the original character, Kim Wexler, I think I care more deeply about than certain family members. Yeah, and- I was going to say, wh- why are you saying more than like television characters? Like, yeah. I don't like that many people. <laughs> I know. I mean, <laughs> and the thing is, is like she's just a lawyer from from Albuquerque. I don't really even know like why what it is. It's just like she's just great. And yeah, so this this show is back um, for its final season. It's being split up into two parts. I believe the the first part is coming in April. I have a lot of questions about stuff that's going on in there. Like I almost feel like this trailer demands a frame by frame breakdown. But my thing is that like I just want to let it hit me. Now I'm all. I'm I'm all excited for it. I'm I'm sufficiently ready for this season, and now I I don't really want to know. I don't want to see any more footage. Like I just want to get into the season. Yeah. I, I am more excited about this show's coming coming back than I think any of the other shows you mentioned, including Atlanta. Which isn't to say that I don't feel incredibly lucky. There will soon be new episodes of Atlanta in my life. It's just that the serialized nature of Better Call Saul just has awoken something inside of me. That right. I really enjoy and find to be precious and rare, especially now. This trailer and the way it's making us feel is the most cogent and efficient argument for something we've been trying to articulate over the last few weeks, which is just give me some TV shows. Now, not all TV shows can be Vince Gilligan, Albuquerque creations on the level of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Possibly no one else in TV history has ever played the slow burn hey, I'm just a frog hanging out here in Albuquerque. Oh, this is a sauna? How cozy. Oh my God, I'm boiling, but this is the most delicious frog soup I've ever eaten in my life. And I am the frog. I lost the metaphor. What, what happened? When did you come but up with this? I, the just, frog in the sauna? As Kaya knows, I'm sleepy. So what's coming out, this is unfiltered, okay? I've not had the second coffee, but I'm just tweeting through it. Um, not everyone can make, do what Vince Gilligan does, but everything that we're experiencing when we watch this trailer is directly a result of the time spent with characters in a place. It is earned. And then when you have that sort of earned emotional connection married to the highest level of narrative filmmaking on TV from a consistent year-to-year, episode-to-episode basis, it's really thrilling. And I just want to say the last thing is, often, I know I'm critical, I feel like we, we both share some of these reservations just about the prequel as the logical next step for pre-established stories, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, I, I, people have explained to us that- We're going to get Game into this with, with with Obi-Wan, yeah. Yes, but also with like Game of Thrones, for example, I guess there's 10,000 years of history, but um, 
be that as it may, it's always that issue of, well, we kind of already know what happens to this character, so dot, dot, dot. And Better Call Saul has gotten a lot of uh, kudos deserved for teasing us with the forward storyline as well as you know immersing us in the backward storyline so that every season has given us a little hint of what Jimmy is up to in his post-Breaking Bad life. But the crucial piece that you alluded to when you talked about Kim is that if you're going to make a prequel, the people that you need to care about most are the ones who don't have futures. Mm-hmm. And the it's Kim, it's, it's Kim and Nacho, and Nacho, and and Lalo to a degree, right? I mean, he's mentioned in Breaking Bad, but we certainly mm-hmm. don't see him. And those three characters are phenomenal, and it's incredibly—I I don't know—you get goosebumps. It's really disturbing that this is the end of the road, and I don't even mean they're all going to die. Although, no, I, I know. I mean, for all I know, I just mean, this is all going to end with Kim, Lalo, and Nacho running a, a rustic farm-to-table restaurant outside of Taos. First of all, a lot of competition. Having spent time in the region, you know, it, you're, it's going to take more than a little uh, blue corn powder to get <laughs> people's attention. Um, but man, just so excited for this. Just feels yeah. great. And, and, it, and you know, I, I don't think it needed this, obviously, and everyone wishes it hadn't happened. But the mortality scare that Bob Odenkirk went through that we've talked about, and then he had that great interview, like, recently in the times with, with Dave Itzkoff, I mean, it, it it added another layer of just weight to this. Mm-hmm. Um, we almost didn't get this. We, we almost lost him as a performer. It's it's wild. So I couldn't be more excited. The thing I always associate, certainly with sort of mid to late period Breaking Bad, and I would probably say the entirety of Better Call Saul, although we have been very vocal about like how early, early Better Call Saul is a little bit of tough sledding, just the amount of... Uh, bureaucratic doc, density to the work doc review yeah doc review that's on display and you know if you look at it in totality it makes what's happening now almost that much more rewarding because you feel like you've actually gone to you've gone through the trenches with this show to get to the nacho mm-hmm. hiding in the in a car with two submachine guns but the thing that i always think about with these when gilligan and gould are like really on their on their game which is from most of the stuff that they do is just the complete and total control, which you have articulated way better than I ever could have. I remember you talking about Breaking Bad and the it's watch-like precision when it comes to its plotting and its narrative. But like, which is not, t- not the the watch podcast-like precision, which no. is not a compliment. But then you watch a trailer like this, and I get grouchy about trailers. I, I, I was just I was just talking with Sean about the Batman uh, film versus the trailer and how much is actually in the trailer that you actually wind up seeing where you're just like, if I had, mm-hmm. this would have been a huge moment if I hadn't seen this already. Like, you know, mm-hmm. um, I don't know what, whether I'll go back and say that about this trailer, but like the control, the control of the music, the control of the framing, the mm-hmm. control of the lighting, the control of the humor and the pacing. And specifically, even the control of the way we get this show marketed to us is, uh, is something really to be studied and admired. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And just to, to close the circle on it, my memory of where things left off is deaf shaky. Um, my last memory of the Ooh, show, man, was, I was uh, just like, I was like, and these guys are these twins. We would know them from. <laughs> I, I, my last memory of the show is is Tony Dalton zooming us from his cell phone on the balcony of an apartment somewhere, yeah. which I believe was non-canon. I believe that's when he was on our podcast, like the first week of the pandemic, and nobody quite knew how to film themselves. Um, but. You know, again, it's a but those are the, the glory days. That that was like this person is totes avail if you would like to speak with them. 
Yeah, just like, oh, yeah, sure, Padma will come on to talk about her Hulu show. She'll just join the Zoom early while her beautiful companion comes and hands her a cup of tea. That was, you know, not everything about 2020 was bad, right? Um, fact check, false. <laughs> but I, again, I just, I just mean it like Better Call Saul is not, uh, it's not a cram course, right? Like I, I look forward to refamiliarizing myself with it. But also, I'm not going to rewatch the season. I don't feel that I need to. The show is so clear in its storytelling. Yeah. And we'll be back, and it'll be fine, and it'll be great. And I like the way you said, use passive voice to be like, if, if only there was a shot-by-shot breakdown of this trailer. By the time this podcast goes up, there will be one on The Ringer, I bet. Like, I'm sure, yes. It exists, yeah. so we will, will be We'll be serviced. going very deep on this on, on this podcast, so I think that we're really looking forward to Saul coming back. Uh, Would, would the most annoying flex ever be if we finally did get Gilligan and or Gould on the podcast and I just spent the whole time talking to them about the commuter flight to Albuquerque? <laughs> that would be a little bit frustrating for me. Yes. Yeah. Would, would you feel frustrated by that? <laughs> I'm just checking. Just checking. Yeah, I think that um, if I was going to have you do Albuquerque commuter flight stuff, mm. I would want you to do it with you and McGregor, who I'm sure has taken a flight to Albuquerque before. Uh, so maybe when we have him on for Obi-Wan, we could knock that out. Um Obi-Wan Kenobi, the trailer dropped on the Ringerverse on Midnight Boys, and I'm sure on uh, House of R coming up, there will be very, very, very in-depth discussions of of Inquisitors and all manner of Sith Lords and what happens after the fall of the Republic and the Jedi purges and all, all that stuff. Just a simple guy. Just a simple guy who likes watching people swing lightsabers. You know what I mean, Andy? Yeah, and... That's not even my first take. My first take is, thank God we get to go back to Tatooine. You know what I mean? I just like... Are we going to try just, not to be cynical about this show? <laughs> Sorry, too late. I just like... I just want to dream big, you know? Like imagine a galaxy far, far away with one, one and a half planets in it. No, for real, I think that this is really interesting because as we said, uh, I think we were previewing it before, um, in some ways, this is the first Star Wars TV show. Yes, in that this is it exactly is the, what I wanted to talk about. It is the first Star Wars TV show that is the doing the thing that Disney does, which is, uh, that Disney did with Marvel, or that Marvel did for Disney. Beloved character, beloved film, storytelling spackle. Like, here are the things that happened in between the crevices, and we are continuing the larger mantle of the story. Now, everybody also knows that The Mandalorian and Boba Fett ended up doing that too in ways that were divisive to only me, apparently, but beloved by everyone else as they folded themselves into the Skywalker story. But I think it is worth noting that within the Lucasfilm camp, the Favreau-Filoni faction has up to this point essentially defined Star Wars. Not just, I was going to say Absolutely. on TV, but, but really just Star Wars ever since no, Skywalker dude, it, bricked. It, it goes down to its tone, you know? Like when you watch this Obi-Wan trailer... And this, I come to this from a pretty, I think, I think I share this with you where it's like you and I probably were not big prequel people. Am I right? I think that's fair to say. And so Worst you, and McGregor, ever. you and McGregor continuing this role is uh, not like a lifelong dream of mine. Like I, you know, it's like, I thought he was very, he was good in the movies, but I, I just don't like those movies very much. So I don't really have like a really big emotional attachment to you and McGregor the way like my childhood self did for Alec Guinness. That being said, I'm going into this with the, the highest hopes and the best intentions. And the thing I thought was cool about the trailer was how operatic it was. 
both yeah. literally and the music that was playing, but the sweep and the sincerity of like the emotions, whereas which isn't to say that Mandalorian's insincere. I think I just mean the bigness of it. Mm-hmm. Mandalorian was almost like falsely modest in retrospect. <laughs> you know, Mandalorian was like, here's the spaghetti western music. It's gonna be like gun smoke. This guy is just gonna have a mission of the week. And then we find out it's the child, it's the Yoda, it's the Luke, it's the everything. But like the the initial like kind of conceit and the way that Mandalorian was originally marketed was like containment. And this move this this show feels sweeping in its in its uh aim. Yes. I think in terms of positives, and, and the only thing I wanted to say to to try to justify the Tatooine uh, jab is just that that's where Obi-Wan was. That's where Luke grew up. It Which I don't to understand. Yeah. For story reasons. So but I, I, and, and they do work, they do some stuff in the trailer to be like, don't worry, it's not just here. It's so, also Blade, Blade Runner, yeah. It's Coruscant and wherever else they're going to head. So, okay, so th- there's all that. I think there is, it, it is a good trailer, without question. The Ewan McGregor piece for me is interesting because we are of the age where coming off of Train Spotting, which was an enormous movie for us, we did the rewatchables about it. Ewan McGregor was the chosen one. He was like one of our favorite actors and a star. And for him to be cast as young Obi-Wan in these movies that we had spent our waking, cognizant, conscious lives anticipating was enormous. Like that was, it was kind of, it was very much pre what anyone now would recognize as the internet. But in as much as it was reported in like movie line and premiere magazine and or MTV and we learned about it, we were psyched. We were hyped yeah. for this. Um, and then in the movies, he's a purple robe tax collector who just follows Liam Neeson around. Like, it is not great. And it is not what we, I think, as kids wanted from the youthful version of the coolest character in the first movie. At least we've um, been consistent throughout our lives about, yeah, we've been, we've about been annoyed concern trolling Star Wars. 23 years or more. So the idea of saying, okay, we're going to give it another go, which I think they must have done to get Ewan McGregor's involvement other than, you know, showering him with Old Republic credits. Like, I, I think that there's something to that. That's kind of intriguing. It There is a, there's potential for a kind of emotional weight to this that was there in Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire showing up in Spider-Man being like, they're going to do right by us here. We're in good hands. Of course, this movie, this TV show also shut down so that they could just try Rewrite again it. on all the scripts. Yeah, because so, they had the uh, Hossein Amini scripts, the guy who wrote Drive, and he had originally, yes. I think, written a Obi-Wan feature. Then Star Lucasfilm brought, closed down, essentially, their features development slate. They scrapped a lot of that stuff, and, and as of now, don't really have anything other than the uh, Kevin Feige and the Taika Waititi yep. projects like kind of in development, at least that we know of. And then everything kind of went into TV as they were sort of reconfiguring what they were doing. The Obi-Wan stuff was moved into TV. They initially started some kind of pre-production on the Hossein Amini scripts, stopped down production, and then had mm-hmm. Joby Harold re- rewrite the show, basically. And my uh, friend and old Briar Patch colleague, Raina McClendon, worked on some scripts as well, which is thrilling that that's now public and can be announced. I'm really happy for her and makes me excited about the show. So a lot of good people put a lot of good energy and good intention into it. And you know it, it does look really, really cool. I think that ultimately, though, the thing that is going to sell me or turn me off of it is going to be what is the mission? Like, is the mission to service a great character from filmed fiction of our lifetimes, full stop? Or is it that, but also 
wouldn't you like to know exactly how the New Republic fell and then, you know, became the First Order, but then also how often he looked through space goggles at baby Luke and Leia, and then also when his beard went gray? And then it's like, not everything needs an origin story. Do you know what I mean? That that feeling of like the the obligatory filling in the holes is where they start to lose me. And I, and I, I get a whiff of that. And at the same time, I have to be cognizant and respectful of the fact that what I'm calling obligatory hole filling is literally gives life to some people who who love this stuff far more than I do. So my hope is that the rap on the Hosina Mini scripts was that it was too close to Mandalorian. Was mm. that they had had like they basically had the success of the Mandalorian and that the screen the scripts for Obi Wan were Obi Wan protects a child and that child is obviously like Luke or Leia or whatever. And that they were like, well, we don't want to do this again if Mandalorian is going to essentially be making the protection of this young creature like the central narrative of the show. So I'm I'm hopeful that like while that will be an element, there's like some stuff going on. I think he's going to be a very reluctant samurai. Like we don't see him touch the lightsaber in the trailer. I think that there's an element to which uh, I heard Charles and Van and Jomi and Steve talking about how like he's probably on the run and can't alert anyone to him being a Jedi. That's a pretty cool conceit where it's like the world's like top five Jedi alive can't actually wield any of his powers or he'll get revealed. We get to see Moses Ingram, who was great in Queen's Gambit and Indira Varmo, who people might remember from uh, Game of Thrones. Can I just mention a couple of other listed cast members of this show? I'd love to hear it. I was curious. So Rupert Friend, I believe is the Inquisitor wearing the white, uh, like, whatever, prosthetic head, right? Cool. So that's that's the guy from Homeland, which he, mm-hmm. I always thought he was incredible. O'Shea Jackson just says six episodes on IMDb. O'Shea Jackson nice. Jr., uh, Den of Thieves, uh, Ice Cube's son. And then Kumail is supposed to be in this show for really? six episodes. Maya Erskine is supposed to be in this show. And huh. Benny Safdie is in this show. Now, any number of these people could be playing robots, that's always how they get you, you know? Yeah, um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and the Solo. The old Phoebe yeah. Waller-Bridge slider. But, um, I mean, it's a great cast. Deborah Chow is really good. Uh, the episodes of, of Mandalorian that she did were some of my favorites. So, I don't know. I'm pretty optimistic. Last two things. One, one concern troll and one just legitimate question. <laughs> Let yeah, me sure. rephrase that. One question. Um, were you surprised that the show is called Obi-Wan Kenobi? Like, do they feel like you couldn't quite sell it if it was called Kenobi or if it was called Obi-Wan? Or did you Obi-Wan. want it to be called like? No, no, no. Like Reform. unforgiven. Yeah. First retired, <laughs> retired tax collector. First reformed. Paul Schrader's Obi Wan would be a movie I would pay to see. I think no, Sean Fennessy just heard that felt the hairs on his neck stand up, and he doesn't know why. He's just holding his daughter a little bit tighter today, knowing that that could have been. Um, Obi- yeah, I just thought it would be Obi Wan. I feel like. Nobody calls him Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's a one day, you know, you don't say LeBron James. You just say LeBron. We know. But speaking of basketball analogies, I'm very curious what you just said. Do you think Obi-Wan is legitimately top five? If they were doing, say it was was Jedi 75, like it is in the NBA. And they're doing the end of the the, prequels, right? Oh, no. In all time? All time Jedis. And the reason I ask is because presumably there have been millions of Jedi, right? (laughs) Obi-Wan definitely flashy player was around a lot of greatness and a lot of heartbreak 
But if you really add up the stats, like what are his most famous contributions? Right. His Is famous he basically contributions like are, that year the Blazers got to the Western Conference Finals? Like he just but he's not. But he's not even Clyde Drexler. What I'm saying is this dude is famous, right, for being okay as yeah. a Jedi. Mentoring on, a force of evil. Mentoring basically Hitler and training him, teaching him everything he knew. Okay. And then getting killed by him. Like, that's his CV. Now, I get that means the show has a lot of work to do. Yeah. But like, we've known, we who don't watch the cartoons have known Ahsoka Tano for, I don't know, collectively like six months. And she's already has a higher player efficiency rating, I feel like, than <laughs> Obi-Wan. Now, I, you get seduced by small sample size, though. Everybody is knows this, this first take? Am I being first take here? Is this too? <laughs> is this skipping Stephen A. stuff? I'm just saying, show me the numbers. Like, like look at the look at the look at the data. How many rings does he have? Um, I I can't really answer that. I feel like also somewhere like there's definitely a 50 part podcast series that breaks this down. So I don't want to step into any like unknown territory where like I don't know what I'm talking about. Like he has doesn't usually stop me, but I'm just saying today. that's fair. He had like 20 years theoretically to teach Luke or Leia anything. He right. finally gets involved in their he lives. He skipped the like right and wrong part. <laughs> he he puts he puts the like remote control space helmet on him like once, plays a little space chess, dies and turns into a pile of clothes. And then Yoda, who's fucking in retirement, has to pick up his mess. <laughs> the more I talk about this, the more I realize. Obi-Wan might suck. I'm sorry. He might. This well, this is a, a much better take for you than um, I just don't know if this show will be good. It's better for you to be like, I actually am anti-Obi-Wan. This is a much better. I'm slowly learning to be a better podcaster. Did, did, who was like one time I heard someone giving podcast advice. Your second advice. 10 years are going to be amazing. Well, no, because someone's podcast advice was just like, oh, you know, to be successful on a podcast, you just have to be like 10 to 15 percent more then you actually are like a little extra, right? Like Who's judge yourself. I, I I honestly did. <laughs> Joseph Rogan. No, I don't remember. Um, and then I was like, wait, you were serious about that? Because I just come on here and I'm like, I don't think I like it. Like, I feel like I well, don't I'm just sell. You gave a reason this time rather than just being like, it's too much. I can't handle it. This is it amazing. Yeah. So random so let's, Thursday let's in February. Take this, let's take this <laughs> and now let's apply it to the next trailer. Let's find out. Okay. Okay, so we're going to okay. talk about Outer Range, which is right. a show that was um, I was put under and a team of doctors extracted the show from my DNA. I remember it's essentially that, yeah. uh, True Detective colon Yellowstone. Uh, it stars Josh Brolin, <laughs> Lily Taylor, Tom Pelfrey, who is, is still put in one of the, the great TV performances of the last couple of years on Ozark season three and Imogen Poots who uh, is always in my cool book for Green Room, but has done a lot of really great stuff uh, before and since. And it looks... Oh, and Will Patton, who's just... you got to have Will Patton if you're going to make a family drama set in the American West that may or may not involve cults. And that's what this show looks like. It looks like a little bit... It's going to get Yellowstone comparisons because it's like a family living in, uh, in Wyoming, in this case, Montana for Yellowstone. But there does seem to be some sort of murder mystery cult aspect that will ring true for any Pizzolatto fans. It was written by Brian Watkins, and I think Amy Simons worked on it uh, in some capacity, if not, I imagine, as a director. And mm -hmm. so I'm very, very excited for it. It also, the trailer, I approve of this. I think it's controversial when trailers use music from other movies oh. as their 
marketing that's stuff. Normal. So no, no, I remember um, that X-Men movie that used the sunshine music was pretty awesome. And in this trailer for Outer Range, they used the arrival music, which Andy dismissively was like said was biting Hans Zimmer before the podcast. It started. is. <laughs> Those giant braying things like that. That dude just messed up our decade with that. Um, Arrival's so, great. The music's great. But yeah. Come on. What did you think of the trailer? For Outer Chris, Range? let me tell you something. When you look at a new TV show, this has the total package. Okay. It takes the milieu of Yellowstone. So you're getting those flyover viewers. Are just you making like you fun want. of me or but are you making adds- fun of Stephen A. Smith? TBD. Let me keep going with it. It adds the prestige angle, right? You got some great actors. You got Josh Brolin, Academy nominee Josh Brolin, I would add, in the trailer, just given a monologue about voids, which might be the most Josh Brolin thing ever since he got arrested for his fourth bar fight. Like, Chris, this show is dazzling. How did that sound? That was good. I can't, I don't think you're being very sincere. No, legitimately, I think it looks really good. <laughs> I just, I don't know how to do this. I feel like I'm learning. This is my first podcast ever. I, uh, I thought it, I thought it looked really good, really for the very basic level reason of clearly has enormously high production values. Big cast, strong cast, good directors working on it. We joke about the commuter flight to Albuquerque. This show was has been was shooting in Albuquerque for quite a long time. Oh, um, let me say. The money they were able to spend in Albuquerque potentially dwarfs the money I was able to spend in Albuquerque, and it shows. And fundamentally, the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup theory of new television shows, where you take the thing from one jar and you take the thing from the other jar and they taste really good together, like yeah. that, there's a cynical version of that for creating new content in Hollywood, or there's the version of it where it's actually well done and they spend a ton of money on it, and you're like, great, this works really well together. I am here for a weird Sci- is it ghost sci-fi or does it just go occult? I think it's uh, just Western. a little bit more impressionistic with some of like with the Brolin falling into the abyss shot. I think it's just yeah. going to have a little bit more of some magical uh, realism going. Y- y- this seems like, and I know you're something of the TV sommelier. It looks like it's going to pair very well with Under the Banner of Heaven. Yes, very good point. Um, Currently, we're in a moment of of tech scammers in TV. I'm personally looking forward to uh, American West cult murder as the sort of theme of the month. I am interested in just for the um, industry piece of it. This is a Amazon prime video show. Yeah. Which is interesting mainly because we've started to talk about Amazon more as a player. We, you know, we, we raved about underground railroad. We certainly weren't alone in that. Um, they have every so often there'll be a comedy or mini series like um, pursuit of love that it just really popped and is wonderful. The boys, is a successful franchise, potential franchise for them and a show that we really like a lot. But in terms of like consistent, this is what we do, they're still not there yet, but nobody's concerned because they can spend their way to it. And there's the version of this show where it is, its uniqueness wins the day. And Mm -hmm. people are like, good for Amazon for being the right home for this, for being able to like celebrate and champion what makes this unique and then pouring the resources into it to let it shine and elevate and find an audience. Or there's the version of it where it's like, yeah, this is this is what you get when Paramount has its version of it and HBO had its version of it. So we're combining them and Amazon's like, we want a piece of that business. Right. So it, it, it's, I still am looking at, especially with um, Lord of the Rings coming and all this, like, I, I guess I'll say this. 
I don't think it's just podcasters and industry trend watchers who look to new shows from services and say, is this their new North Star? I think that internally, the development teams are doing that as well. And this is a pretty big swing in a potentially populist uh, prairie. So, hmm. but which is interesting for them. But but yeah, I I, I was kidding. We got to take this podcast on tour throughout the West mm-hmm. and call it the Populist Prairie Express. I actually there, there probably is, is a Populist my, Prairie Express. We don't want to. Be that's my prairie. demo, by the way. That's <laughs> yeah. I'm the Heartland Whisperer. Andy, you know, before we go, before we get into my interview with Max Bornstein, what a podcast today. Uh, I feel like we've learned a lot about each other and you've improved, which is really all you could ask for on a week-to-week basis from any any young podcaster. I look at this in terms of decades, not episodes. Yeah. So I think that this is going to be really big for me going forward. Um, <laughs> and I got to say, like, and I think Kaya can confirm this, just your your body language when I took an aggressive stand, just changed. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not saying you've been mailing it in. I'm just saying you do a lot of podcasts and you're basically like, show me something new. No, I I was, like I'm I just did. glad that you had something so constructive to say about Obi-Wan Kenobi. That what, that what if he sucks? <laughs> no, he didn't say that though. Give yourself some a show. Credit. What if he does? Andy, we gotta just, let's take it down a second and let's get serious. Um, you know, it's always sad when uh, the Watch Podcast says goodbye to someone who's who's left this moral coil, uh, it's it's always um, you know you try to figure out how you really want to um, remember someone. And uh, this week we lost a titan in a lot of ways. Our own um, our own Obi Wan, an Obi Wan of raspberry danishes, really, because uh, Charles Entman passed away at ninety two years strong. Rest in power to the god. May you may you lie on a, a pillowy bed of crumb cake in the sky, in the heavens. You know, he, he it's his name. He, they, the Entenmann family sold, sold this company in the late 70s and, and made a mint off of it, I should say, but they still own and operate, I believe, a bakery that originated a lot of our favorite, uh, our favorite products. And what better way to go out, Andy, by just asking you, um, Desert Island, you can take one Entenmann's baked good with you. This is great. Um... I don't and know. And feel free to talk me through your process. Like, well, I, love I guess that what I want to say is, I, I, I don't know if this, who this resonates with in our audience. But again, as we said, Kai, at the top, are you aware of Entenmann's baked good products? Yes. Do I eat them? That was no. That, that was a slow yes, but we'll accept it. Um, here's the thing. If there you want to give a, some context, these are very popular in the the Philadelphia area, uh, along with Tasty yeah. Cakes. And, but I think all uh, all Beyond. up and down the Eastern Seaboard. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess what I would say is that you know I I I raise I'm a, I'm I'm a father. I raise children in this fraught 21st century era, and I would say there are a lot of a lot of choices for for treats for just food in general, and the sheer breadth, cultural diversity of flavors available to my children at any time is just dazzling. You know, like I don't have to walk to the distance I have to walk to buy a matcha croissant. I don't, wouldn't work up a sweat. Do you know what I mean? Like I can have delights of the world, fusion delights on my kitchen table within a matter of of minutes. And so, and I think that it's made my children soft (laughs) and spoiled because I don't think they understand the, the, the out of body ecstasy 
that people of our generation would have felt when like you came down the stairs for just another fucking Tuesday. Yeah. And there was a box of Entenmann's coffee cake on is the that, counter. Is that your choice or are you just telling a, is that just the example at the end of your it, story? It might be my choice because like that to me was a sign of not just a good day ahead, but of like smooth sailing. You know what I mean? Like classy times. Yeah. Because it's cake that's to be served with coffee. You sure. know what I mean? So you, you, you're not in a hurry. I'm not drinking the coffee. I'm eight. But I'm saying, like, it speaks to a more civilized time. That said, my old friend Brian Sullivan had a very different, his house was run a little bit differently. And in that uh-huh. house, they always had the chocolate glazed donuts in that yeah. long, the coffin-like Entenmann's yeah. box with a texture that I, 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 I don't want to describe as food-like. Waxy. Because I don't think it was. It was waxy. But what luxury. Do, it was like wax donuts? W- wax on a new sponge. Mm. You know? Yes. And yet somehow delicious and addictive. If I had to choose, I would go Raspberry Twist Danish because it has uh, the three major food groups, which is... Um, raspberry Danish and Twist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. <laughs> You're getting so good, you took my joke. Um, anyway, rest in peace to Charles Entman. Thanks for all the delicious uh, did, I, did I just reach into your mouth and steal your Danish? I'm sorry. Um, just, Andy and I will I'm, be back on Monday. This is me being 15% extra. <laughs> we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about Top Chef. We'll talk about some severance. Got some other stuff to, to address. We'll have a guest on Monday. And uh, yeah, enjoy my conversation with Max Bornstein. I was really curious about what went into making Winning Time. Obviously, uh, a project with a lot of scrutiny, uh, with a lot of eyes on it. I was, I was just honestly fascinated with how they they managed to to make it under the watchful eye of the Los Angeles Lakers, the National Basketball Association, and all the various superstars being depicted on the show. I can't get a sense of like. I feel like this show is catching on, like on NBA Twitter, but I don't know whether it's like crossed over into like TV dork world or even like general fandom. So it'll be curious to see. I mean, like I was very bullish on like this shows like potential and it's lived up to for my own personal expectations, but I haven't seen like, Oh my God, we we could barely keep HBO max operational when with the demand for this. I think it's a first episode thing. Like I, I, there's no real precedent for this show. I mean, and I imagine you talk about this with max, like it doesn't follow a traditional structure for a contemporary drama. So I just think it's really like people are probably waiting to be like, well, how does this feel to watch it week to week? And and my guess is they'll realize that it feels pretty fun and it will have a longer, I think there's a lot more of life in front of it than this week would suggest. Yeah, for sure. Uh, All right, Andy, it was great talking to you. It was great to be produced by Kaya McMullen, who I'm sure has enjoyed this episode more than maybe any other podcast she's ever heard. Uh, I think so, because now she's like, finally, I'm going to work with two professional podcasters. Not just not just Chris. We'll be back on Monday. Enjoy my chat with Max Bornstein. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, 
Confluence and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. So I, I was having this really interesting experience watching especially the first episode where like, you know, Andy and I on, on this podcast have talked a lot about Star Wars stuff and Marvel stuff over the last couple of years. And I was basically having, you know, when, when somebody's talking about like they're watching Mandalorian and they see like an obscure Star Wars canon character talking to Luke Skywalker and it just gives them chills. Like, I think that happened for me with <laughs> watching Norm Nixon and Magic Johnson play one-on-one at Donald Sterling's house. Um, so thank you for that. I think that this You're is... You're um, welcome. Very specifically targeted for for me, uh, for 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 <laughs> Bill Simmons, for like people who work at the Ringer. But man, I was wondering if whether in the writing process or filming, what was your first pinch me moment? Uh, oh boy, <laughs> it's funny. I, I mean, God, there were so many. Uh, like, is it writing Magic Johnson into Final Draft? Like, I don't even know. Well, I mean, it, seeing Quincy Isaiah in uniform lighting up the screen with that smile and just embodying magic and is was you know has to be one of them i always go to sally field talking basketball with her between (laughs) takes because she's an obsessive fan (laughs) and frustrated with the lakers this year but there was a little good conversations but yeah i mean so much of it is a pinch me thing i grew up in la and i'm a big basketball fan and so for me, it's kind of a dream to be able to take this story about the moment where Lakers basketball not only transformed the NBA, but had this cultural impact beyond that. Every aspect of it has been uh, a pinch me moment. Lakers fandom is a, is a very specific kind of fandom. So I, I, you're, you're a Lakers fan, but like Lakers fans are, um, it transcends just like support. It's, it's like fiercely loyal. And mm. I was curious about like people don't how, usually say that about LA fans. Well, I think they're well, okay. So they're loyal to 
Kobe. They're loyal to like mm-hmm. Magic. They're loyal to their icons. I guess I'll say. I mean, like mm-hmm. I think that they can also they can also voice their concerns about coaching decisions or whatever. But um, <laughs> no, I agree with you. But yeah. How do you feel as a Lakers fan? And like, what was that like kind of trend, like navigating your own personal kind of history with the team versus approaching it as a storyteller? Well, I mean, for me, the part of the thing that I, that got me into sports and basketball in general, or the thing that always keeps me connected to a team or the stories anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up watching the later years of the Showtime era, but it wasn't until the sort of Shaq Kobe years that were, that it kind of became, you know, as more of a grown up, it became a team that I was devoted to and, you know, watched every game and became sort of absurdly obsessed by the way we sports fans do, <laughs> even as we know how silly it is. And there's something amazing about it, you know, but the, but it's the characters, it's the people who I've always been sort of intrigued by. And in this case, I think, in trying to address or in trying to tackle the story, not just as a series of events that we as sport fans are aware of, but as the lives of characters uh, who lived through this and trying to get into those rooms that I wasn't afforded access to and that none of us as fans are trying to imagine the humanity and the motivation of these people in the way that, we can relate to it, that I could relate to it. It's not that I had to put my fandom out the window. It's that I had to sort of approach it with a connection that felt human, that felt like rather than putting people on a pedestal, it was trying to find connections that I could relate to. And all of us, you know, working on the project, that's kind of how we approached it. And all the writers and all of the sort of people, all the actors, you know, it was uh, John C. Riley talks about how, you know, he didn't, he didn't even read ahead in the script. Uh, and you know, there's 10 episodes. He didn't even read ahead. He would read whichever we were shooting at the time, because for him, it helped to, to really live moment to moment. He didn't know yeah, how right. it was going to end. He doesn't know uh, Pat Riley's coming or whatever, you know, like exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and like, and so, and it's interesting to do that in a show where, you know, there is a temptation or there's a, risk of falling into the kind of miniseries mode of just hitting the big beats for their own sake. And that's that, you know? And so our goal was, was, you know, uh, to try to dig deeper than that and, and sort of tell a story that would be using this true story we know as a window onto some other things, these characters, this era, this moment in time, and a number of different themes that are all, I think, magnified by that prism. Can you tell me just uh, some one hundred and one level, like, uh, like how how did you get involved with this? Because obviously, there's the Perlman book, uh, mm-hmm. and and Jim Hack was working on an adaptation. So how did you how did you come to start working on this? Yeah. So Jim had optioned the book and for years was searching for uh, a place to adapt, to, to set it up a network. Initially, I think thinking of it as like a mini series, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a one or two season thing. And, um, and we had a, some mutual friends. He was looking for a writer to come and write the pilot and ultimately it went forward showrun. Uh, and I had a relationship with HBO and we had some mutual friends uh, who told him and assured him that I was actually a Lakers fan and a basketball guy. <laughs> and we, uh, and we met and hit it off and I read the book and, 
you know, and I, and I was, I was taken with the book because there was so much that I hadn't uh, known, you know, there, I knew the broad strokes, but so much of the detail uh, that's in there and that I've since, you know, found in, in, you know, all of the numerous other books (laughs) and articles of the time and interviews that we've, it's, there's such richness uh, as I think there is, you know, I'm sure on any great franchise or any great dynasty, but particularly I think in that moment, it was a very unique collection of idiosyncratic characters at every level, you know, from the ownership to the management to the players, uh, really iconic figures. And even the people who you hadn't, you know, who I had not been familiar with as a Lakers fan, Jack McKinney, vaguely knew the name Spencer Haywood, uh, Claire Rothman, who ran the forum, all these people, uh, who I really didn't knew very little about, even as a fairly avid sports fan. And then, uh, discovered their, you know, extraordinary contribution. And then when you guys were putting together the sort of visual identity of the show, I'm fascinated by it because obviously it lends the show. It's almost like it's, it's like a visual showtime in and of itself. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a sh- visual showtime offense where there's all this <laughs> changing of film stocks and breaking of the fourth wall. And, and the, it, it has so much energy I was curious how you all arrived at that and what kind mm-hmm. of conversations sort of led up to it and, and how it changed the writing too, because I w- imagine you get used to essentially writing, knowing, okay, this is the house style. Yeah. So I can do this, this, and this, but maybe I can't do that because that's not how we really shoot stuff. Right. To- no, absolutely. I think, I mean, the, you know, you hit the nail on the head. I think the style, the goal of the style was twofold. Number one, uh, it was to transport you to an era. And I think, you know, Adam McKay and Todd Ben Hazel are brilliant, uh, DP on the pilot and, and throughout much of the season, uh, developed this style where, you know, these aren't filters. These are, you know, each, they shot it on 35 millimeter film and we shot it on eight millimeter film cameras. And we shot it on this period video camera that he, that Todd, I don't know, like dug out of the archives somewhere called the Ikigami. Uh, which was like a predecessor of the beta. Oh and when God. you look, and when you look at things through the camera, it feels like a time machine. Like it doesn't feel like you're faking it. You're literally, you can, anything you put on, it just feels like you're watching old television from the seventies. Uh, and it's extraordinary. And so the idea was to, we all are so familiar with documentary aesthetics when, when telling stories like this, uh, the idea was to be able to like layer media like that uh, and really give ourselves that freedom. And and initially I think there was, you know, in shooting it, it wasn't quite clear how we're going to use all the different stocks. It wasn't clear if there was going to be a rule as to when you go to video or when you go to eight millimeter. And ultimately uh, in the hands of Hank Corwin, who's the editor of the pilot, who's just a mind boggling genius. He's, you know, he did, JFK and a number of other incredible like wait uh, he, he did, did JFK life yeah he doesn't have credit but he did JFK oh because <laughs> I was did, I I think that I was like man it feels like JFK and he, yeah and he yeah. did tree he did tree of life like he's just one of the brilliant brilliant editors uh and has worked with Adam on a number of different movies recently uh and is incredible and so he used that stuff like he took the video that may have in in le- in more conservative hands may have wound up you know just as like a tiny dash of spice and he would use it for coverage in scenes that had nothing to do with 
you know, scenes where you're supposed to be on television, which yeah. some of these, you know, we're shooting some of that stuff to feel like archival footage. Uh, but he used it in, you know, in character scenes. And the, the, in the pilot, there's an example where he uses it in the scene between Magic Johnson and, and Irvin Sr.'s father. And just for dialogue, uh, this emotional dialogue. And it, to me, it sort of like disarms me instantly. And, and I felt like rather than feeling like you're watching a film, you're, you suddenly feel like you're in a room with two people, which can be disorienting for people. It's a bold style, but I think ultimately for us, it became really liberating. And it it's kind of leads to the second part, which is the sort of the, the tone that we adopted uh, in the writing of being able to talk to the camera or being able to sort of have cutaways to animation or whatever felt right. Again, it's kind of a bold style, but our goal was to be able to have something that had the same level of showmanship and fun and irreverence and style that, that, that Showtime basketball brought, brought to the game. You know, the, the, prior to that, you know, there was ABA basketball, there was like street ball, there was exciting stuff happening, but the NBA had like largely had a reputation for being kind of like, you know, uh, half court basketball yeah, around big man the center centric. Yeah. and, you know, and, and like slow and plodding and, uh, and showtime was this extremely kinetic, exuberant, exhilarating thing to watch. And so it felt that we had to try in some interesting way to encapsulate, like, capture that in the filmmaking. Uh, and then, yeah, once we kind of, the truth is we didn't really know how well, uh, any of the talking to camera stuff even would work until we really saw it on its feet. Uh, and, and I remember the first day was we shot the golf course scene of the pilot where, mm -hmm. uh, John C. Riley, the first shot of the, of the first day is, you know, Jerry, Jerry West and Bill Sharman start arguing about drafting magic versus Sidney Moncrief in the background and, and bus, uh, turns to camera and just starts, you know, telling us the backstory of Jerry West. And, uh, and in the pilot, there's cutaways and other things while he's doing that. But at the time it was just, you know, the take as he's doing it, this long speech. And, and I will admit I was nervous because I had yeah. no idea how it would come off, but John is such a master and he made it in what could have felt expository and could have felt dull instead felt like, P.T. Barnum kind of taking you by the hand and leading you through, you know, into his world where he's telling you about this, you know, this guy he's almost selling to you and pitching to you. And so, and it, so it, it ends up giving you a window into his personality and his character and giving you that exposition in a fun way. So after that, we realized like, well, we can kind of go to this well uh, and we would play with it. We didn't, you know, we would, and all the actors, like every other actor would come and say like, you know, when do we get when our When do moment? I get my, my Ferris Bueller right? moment? Everyone yeah. did it. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we'd give people, and, often, and oftentimes just like give them an opportunity because, you know, Adam uh, shoots in a very improvisatory style where he always gets what's written, but he'll also allow actors to play around. Uh, and so we really incorporated that into the production of the show and would, you know, there's a great moment late in the season uh, where Quincy uh, as magic is having dinner uh, at the all-star weekend with David Stern. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a moment where uh, without giving too much away, but Larry bird 
comes up and he ha- and magic has his own you know resentments and feelings about always being in the shadow of the conversation about him and Larry Bird and he just gives like a look to camera that wound up you know saying everything like we yeah. were able to cut lines that we had written because his expression says it all so it becomes really freeing for the actors i can't believe um you know this show really feels very fleet of foot I've seen four episodes at this point, but we'll only talk about like, you know, I don't want to get too too into the weeds with it, but I will say that like, you know, it moves along, but it, it's almost disorienting how each, almost every character could have their own show. You know, mm-hmm. like you could, you could very easily, and I can tell it must've been like a very um, rewarding process. Like the Jerry West character is a, is a, is his own novel. You know what I mean? Like it's his Oh, own. absolutely. And um, you know, I, I felt that way four or five times watching the first few episodes where I was just like, oh my God, I could spend like so much time with Jack McKinney. I could spend so much time totally. with Pat Riley's yeah, his relationship with his wife and all this stuff. So as a as a writer, as somebody who's working with other writers on this show, how hard is it to channel surf when you might want to spend more time with oh, Jason Clark or part. yeah. It's the hardest part. I mean, and the, the, the scary thing is that once upon a time in the early days of developing this, we thought maybe we could do this as a miniseries uh, and like in a two season type one, you know, done, take the entire decade and you're done. And it's like, you could, but you'd be leaving on the table everything that's really exciting and interesting about the sh- this story, which to me is these characters. Yeah. You know, it's like the, mo- the, the basketball we love and we're going to do our best to bring people back into Showtime basketball and deliver it in a way that's inside the huddle and that's, that you see it in a way you never have. But there's no question we don't have Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to be themselves, right? So we can only approximate that basketball and you can watch that on YouTube. So the thing that we can do is we can get, we can reveal who people are yeah. and, or try to, and yeah, Jerry West and Pat Riley, uh, are and you know just to name two that you mentioned are just are they're just ex- extraordinarily fascinating deep you know in some ways damaged as we all are uh you know people with their demons and their talents uh and and like and it's reading for us in our research phase uh which kind of never ends <laughs> but you know, so many people have written books and given, you know, these are, these guys have been in the public eye for so long. And, you know, Jerry West has spoken eloquently about his battles with depression, uh, and, uh, and his past. And Pat Riley has written a lot about that moment in his life that we see in the first season where he was, you know, wandering the beach, wondering what his next act would be. And I think we think about these guys as these iconic figures. And we think about, where they wind up. Uh, but it's really, I think the thing that connects me to the characters when I'm writing it, and certainly I think for the actors, certainly is, are the ways in which they're not the, the superheroes, the ways in which that they're, you know, they're slogging through the difficulties of life. And I, and I think, uh, and then when you get those moments where you realize like, Oh, the, you know, Pat Riley will eventually put on his Armani suit and be Pat Riley. <laughs> it's like to feel how, what went into that. Yeah. And when Jerry West, which can we know if you're a sports fan and if you're not, then you watch the show long enough and you'll find out becomes 
one of the, if not the greatest general managers ever in the history of the game or maybe any sport, but at this moment in time feels like he's a has-been and, and, and has no idea what his future is going to be in basketball because he hates coaching. And he feels ever since, you know, he stepped off the floor and hung it up, he hasn't felt like he belonged anywhere. And so that, you know, kind of, um, I think that kind of human drama is like, uh, it's certainly what keeps me excited and invested. And to your point, it's very, very difficult uh, not to spend, you know, entire episodes with any given character and trying to keep, you know, it's doing our best to, to allow ourselves to sink into character while still continuing to tell, you know, a story that has momentum. Do you feel like, you know, so, you know, you've worked obviously on some huge projects, like the Godzilla movies and, you know, like you've, you've worked on things that have lots of stakeholders, obviously. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, this is a pretty fascinating case study where I think that when this was announced, I'll be candid. I was just like, how? I, I was right. like, are, are they going <laughs> to get to use the actual uniforms? Like, are they going to call them the Lakers or is it going to be like, is everything going to have to have a different name? Yeah. And then I saw the trailer and I was like, damn. And then I saw the episodes and I was like, I can't believe they pulled this off. Like over the course of the development and the production of this, um, what, how, I didn't even want to like give you a false narrative where it was like, there was so much pressure on you. How did you handle it? <laughs> but I imagine it's like, it was a unique kind of pressure different than yeah. having like a hundred million dollar action movie that you're working on versus right. like, hey, uh, you know what people actually really care about is how Magic Johnson is depicted. <laughs> so fun. No, it's funny. It's like, I think at every level, I think you're, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of responsibility and pressure to get it right. There's also, I think, I, for me, I think, um, for better or worse, I'm really good at, uh, or bad, depending on how you see it at having a kind of tunnel vision. And so if I fall in love with something with a story and that's what happened, you know, early on, you know, when kind of Jim brought me the book and as we started really digging in, I never thought about how hard it would be to cast magic in Kareem until we started casting. Like I'd seem so ignorant and silly, but I was just like, well, no, this is, yeah. Like, of course it'll work out. Cause if we can write something, it's like very, very naive, but I was like, if we can write it and we love it, like whatever they will come. <laughs> and it was the hardest, it was the hardest casting, uh, hurdle certainly that we had, but I think that, you know, our casting director is an icon, uh, Francine Maisler, and she's, uh, it was the hardest thing she's ever had to cast. And, you know, it's like, everything is challenging about it. And then that, that's, just, you know, Every character has that because people are so much in the public eye and many of them have to have basketball skill sets. Many of them have to be tall or believably tall. And so there's all sorts of boxes to check, but we know these people so well as fans. And our goal is not, is of course to serve that, um, what people know, but also give them a window into something that they don't know Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, because otherwise, who gives a shit? Like why bother? Right. And so it was an interesting challenge, even talking to Adrian about the role of Pat Riley from the very beginning, because he was really intrigued uh, about playing Pat Riley. But at the same time, when he started reading the scripts before, you know, before when he and I were just talking about it and we were, you know, hoping for him to say yes, 
we sent him a lot, like a number of scenes and some scripts and he had to, and we had, I had to tell him like, this isn't Pat Riley where you think you know him yet. Yeah. This is Pat Riley before that Pat Riley. And, and that's part of the great fun of it is that you get to play that over a long haul and we get to see you transform into that character and see the roots of this guy who's this kind of working class scrapper, you know, to see like the ultimate winner at a moment where he's probably thinking of himself as a loser is just as incredible a loser. drama. Yeah, exactly. And so, and he, he, you know, to his credit, totally bought in, but at the same time, you know, uh, is like, when do I get to do the hair? Like, when can I shave the mustache? <laughs> when do I get to be cool? Yeah. This guy got <laughs> LeBron like, to come cool. to Miami, right? Like that happened. Right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'm like, you are cool. You're cool. It's cool. This is cool. But he's, but it was so funny because he's so great. And he's just like, but I am going to get to do the hair, right? I am going to do, do the, 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 the suits. We're like, yes. You it's like you're trying are. to convince somebody to play Batman, but they don't get to be Batman for like three right. movies, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to be Bruce Wayne for a minute, but it is that way, right? I mean, it's like the hair is that way. You'll see when you get to it. I think it's in episode seven. There's a fun moment. There's some like Easter eggs. It's like we play it a lot. It's like, you know, we have to your earlier point about uh, the way that some people would feel about a Star Wars movie or a Marvel thing with those Easter eggs. Like that's how we as fans look at this. And I think, and you know, we're not making the show strictly to appeal to people who care or know about basketball. Like I, I really don't believe you have to, to find great drama in this story, but at the same time, it's layered with all the things that as fans, you can flag and appreciate you know, and go, wait a minute, that's, you know, it's that moment, those are the goggles, you know, yeah, whatever it is. There was, I think it was in the, the the big Hollywood Reporter piece about this show, I believe that's where Casey Bloys had the quote where he was like, I've been to five basketball games, like, but I, yeah. I enjoyed it, you know? <laughs> right. And I was curious whether or not anybody in your life or anybody that you know who has seen it who isn't a basketball fan and doesn't know these stories, like how, have they had any reactions that you were like, oh, interesting, like, you know, where they like, I assume this show is about, uh, is about Chick Hearn or something, you know, like, well, no, it's funny. Yeah. I've shown, you know, uh, even just in, in showing like the pilot over the, over, you know, we, the pilot's been around for a little while because we shot it before the pandemic. Right. Uh, and so, and we were in the process of getting ready to, to shoot the rest of the season, uh, when the world shut down. And so over the course of time, I've had a little bit of time to show the pilot to, people wondering what the fuck I've been up to and why I <laughs> haven't returned their calls and whatever. And, uh, and people, uh, you know, and a lot of them are not, you know, sports fans or some people are like the spouses or significant others of people who are sports fans. And they always seem to respond, uh, just as well. Like they, I think, and, and kind of start talking about it in the lingo. I mean, I think, look, not to compare, but like, what do we know about, you know, I, I don't think you need to be up on the world of uh, selling meth to appreciate Breaking yeah. Bad or on the world of of Westeros to appreciate a Game of Thrones or whatever. I think it's like one of the beauties of this kind of immersive uh, show on a network like HBO where they will really invest in like creating a world uh, and uh, is that you get to immerse yourself and like lose yourself in that. And even and it's transportive. And so what I, you know, one thing we're, do, we do, we're doing is we're rebuilding this era too. And I think even if people didn't live through that era as a basketball fan, 
a lot of people who are watching this show have connections to that moment in time. Yeah. And, and for us, like when we were making it a big part of what we were trying to bring to the table was some of that specificity too, you know, when the phrases people use, even when they're uncomfortable and sort of things people wouldn't say today and like the way people dress and the way people act and some of the sort of, you know, without mocking it or making fun of it to sort of like allow yourselves to realize that this is, you know, it's only 40 years ago, but sure. it feels like it might as well have been, you know, it's a period piece in that way. I was, I, I thought one of the things that the show handles really well is like the 1980s things that are obviously we know better by now or things that have become like a, a, a very credibly out of fashion, like mm-hmm. view, viewing the, viewing that behavior, like honestly, without being um like oh we know so much better now you know right, what i mean exactly because like it, it doesn't feel like you're chiding like these characters for being who they were no not at all i i it, i really don't know and i i think like i mean the truth is we've things a lot of things have changed and we've come a long way and at the same time like a lot of things are the same and mm-hmm. just got a nicer prettier package on them i mean one of the nice things i think about you know, when you're, if you're talking about themes of gender or race or, uh, you know, political correctness or any of the kind of like workplace stuff in this show, uh, some moments where you might as an audience or or do as an audience today, like wince at what people say or, or how they act in a slightly oblivious manner. It's still, I think one of the, you know, you have on the one hand, the way, you know, you can pat yourself on the back for, you know, we recognize that. And on the other hand, we have to look in the mirror and go, oh, we're not yeah. that far, you know? And I think that's one of the beauties of the lens that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, the past offers to today where we get to look through it and go like, well, we've changed, but, you know, maybe not as much as we would like, you know? Um, you've been really generous through your time. I'm going to let you go in a second, but you, you did mention Sally Field being a, a big basketball fan. And so yeah, I was big I, Lakers fan, big Dodgers fan, and so much fun to talk to uh, about sports. I was curious if who was the other like who are the other secret basketball sickos in this cast? Like pretty much everybody, or is it like we're we gonna uh, find out like Tracy Letts actually can like diagram <laughs> <laughs> a team's a zone Pulitzer Prize winning? Tra- <laughs> you know, Tracy is one of two Pulitzer Prize winning writers <laughs> who act on the show. Yeah, because Stephen, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because Stephen too. It's like it was it was intimidating having these guys, but they're he's so great. Oh my god, both of them are so great. Uh, yeah, you know he's from Chicago, so I think he'd been a he's Bulls fan, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and you know Adrian's from New York, so he's you know been to more Lakers games than he's been to Knicks games, just because he always talks about it. You know, by the time he came out here, that's when he had money to actually go to <laughs> games. But growing up, you know, he was a big Knicks fan. Uh, and, uh, you know, McKay is like, you know, obviously, uh, an extraordinarily, uh, big basketball junkie. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and at every level, like we had, you know, that's part of the fun of it was that, you know, everyone at, behind the scenes too, so many people had connections. We shot it in LA. So there were a lot of Lakers fans, uh, in the crew. And then there was like, you know, one of our wonderful, uh, camera guys who's, He's he's a genius, honestly, uh, and he's a big Bucks fan. So uh, we forgive him. And we had Clippers <laughs> fans. We were one episode was directed by an avid Clippers fan, 
and, and was there, were there and, any Celtics fans in the cast or crew? <laughs> uh, yes, yes. One of our one of our wonderful editors, Max Kepke, is a Celtics fan. I was Big wondering whether Celtics like he fan. had like a tear in his eye for the Red Auerbach stuff, but it that's like the only for one. him. It was very difficult <laughs> for him, but he he kind of put it aside. At one point, he started talking about the Lakers uh, when we were, we were working on an edit. Uh, he started talking about the Lakers as we. Just not not just within the thing, and I think yeah. it was like a moment where he almost had an aneurysm when he realized <laughs> what he was doing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it was it was uh, we had a lot of we had a whole mixed bag of uh, of of loyalties. But but you know, it's a love letter to the Celtics too. It really is. I mean, yeah. like there's no greater honor than being able to be like you know Darth Vader to, <laughs> in a show like this. Well. Um, <laughs> show's awesome thank you so much for spending time with me today hopefully maybe we could talk to you a little bit around like after the finale when we could be like a little bit more free with references oh sure absolutely i'm sure i have a lot of follow-ups man but thanks so much for coming on you bet thanks chris really appreciate it this episode is brought to you by state farm you might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.